Well, a few years ago, um, there was a hashtag out on the internet, and it was kind of one of my favorite hashtags, okay? It was this. It was hashtag, you're doing it wrong, okay? Hashtag, you're doing it wrong. So if you've seen hashtag, you're doing it wrong, this is about people who would use a product, but use it in a way it wasn't intended, or, or maybe just think differently than the rest of the world. Let me give you an example. This is one of them. Okay, hashtag, you're doing it wrong, right? <laughs> right here, this guy got the umbrella, just missed it. Or this one is actually my favorite right here. This one, so commit to be fit. So imagine me with me, you go to the grocery store, you're like, I am gonna be healthy. This is my goal in life, is to be healthy now. I'm walking in the grocery store, I'm gonna make healthy choices. I'm committing to be fit, and this is what you see. We actually have one of our executive pastors, his name's Jason, this is actually what he does. He says one week, I'm going on a diet. The next day, the next, day next week, he shows up with donuts. <laughs> and you go, hey, I thought you were on a diet. And here's the thing, he loses weight while eating donuts. I promise you, you need to ask him about it if you know him. It's a thing and it works. I don't know how, but it works. Here's the last one. Hashtag, you're doing it wrong. You know, every single one of us has somebody in our family that does this. In fact, right now, why don't you just look up and down the aisle. Who in your aisle right now is that person? And you might be looking up and down the aisle and go, there's nobody in my row. That's because it's you. You're the person. You are the one in the family that everybody else is like, yeah, point at him. That's you right there. You know, in my family, actually it's my wife's family, they love to tell stories about great grandma Ruth. Because great grandma Ruth was this person, the hashtag you're doing it wrong. She was the one that who would buy a car and, and, and when she'd go to the dealership, she'd bring the knife with her to cut out the seatbelts. You know, that kind of person, because those are in the way. Or, or the, the, the favorite story is that she bought a house that had a dishwasher in it. And it was like, to her, like she's got the sink, that seems to be wasted space, so when you come over, that's where you put the shoes. That's the shoe rack that goes underneath the counters which maybe is genius because it's always, the kitchen is always near the back door, so maybe we're doing it wrong and she's not. You know, some things, when we do it wrong, it's funny. Other things, if we use a product incorrectly, it can be a problem, right? That's why every medicine bottle on it says, for intended use only. So I'll tell you a story. A few years ago, my wife and I, we led a trip, a mission trip of students to Nicaragua. And, and here's the thing you need to know. My wife, her name's Brooke, she is amazing at everything except sleeping. That's like the one thing in the world she can't do and she doesn't do well. And so even at home, in our own bed, she tosses and she turns and she kicks me. And then, and then she's like, you kept me all night, up all night with your snoring. And here's the thing, I don't even snore. I breathe so I don't die when I'm sleeping. But to her, like any noise in the room is keeping her up. So imagine this, we go to Nicaragua and it's 90 degrees while you sleep at night. There's no air conditioning. There's roosters crowing and dogs barking. And then, and then the place where we stay, this hotel, there's actually mango trees all on the property, which is awesome during the day because you can just grab a ripe mango. But at night, these mangoes, they ripen and then they fall on the tin roof right above where you're sleeping. It sounds like bombs are going off in your room, okay? So she is miserable on this trip. So I thought, here's what I'll do. I'll walk up the hill, I'll find a pharmacy. So I walk up the hill and I find this pharmacy. Now I've taken four years of Spanish, two in high school, two in college, but I don't speak Spanish. <laughs> 
And I walk into this pharmacy and I look at the guy and I say, uh, mi esposa no dormir. And then I stare at him. <laughs> and he stared back. Apparently that's not a question. That's just a random statement that made no sense to him. So I said, yo necesito medicina. <laughs> to which he then got really excited and spoke something really, really quickly to me and really, really passionate. I don't know if he was yelling or trying to explain something, but I had no idea what he said, so I just stared. And eventually, he turned around, grabbed some pills out of the counter, put them in a pill box, and he gave them to me. And I left really, really confident, thinking, other than the fact that I just bought prescription pills over the counter in a third world country using a language that I don't speak, what could possibly go wrong in this moment, right? So I take it to Brooke and I'm like, hey Brooke, I saved the day. And I give them to her and I said, take these pills. And she did. So the next morning I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to hear how it went, you know? And so she comes out of her room and I'm like, how did it go last night? And she's like, I don't know what that pill was. She goes, it was like after I took it, I went into a coma. She says, you could have murdered somebody in my room last night and I would not have woken up, which is also a problem. She watched a lot of Dateline and snapped and buried in the backyard. I come home, she's taking notes and she's like, they would have gotten away with it if they wouldn't have done this and this. And I'm like, why do you care? I feel like she's planning something. Anyway, so, so she slept like a baby. In fact, the rest of the trip, she'd only take a half a pill because she's like, one is too much. Fast forward a year later, we go back to Nicaragua, we take different students this time, and I think, you know what I'm going to do? Be the best husband ever. Because some people, what they do is they bring their wives flowers, not me, I bring my wife sleeping pills. <laughs> so I walk up to the hill, we have the same kind of interaction with the guy at the, the pharmacy, and I bring the pills back and I hand them to Brooke, but this time... The, the medical missionary sees me given to Brooke and says, what are those pills? And I'm like, I don't know, some pills that a really trustworthy retail clerk and a Nicaraguan strip mall gave me? And she's like, don't you think we ought to look it up and see what those are before she takes them? So that seems overly cautious, but okay. <laughs> so she looks it up and she goes, Kurt, that's seizure medication. But one of the side effects, temporary comas. No lie. So I thought, well, it'll work. And she's like, she, she's like, you cannot make your wife take those pills. And so she didn't. Uh, because here's the thing. When you use something outside of its intended purpose, sometimes, well, it causes pain and fallout and harm. So think about that. Every product was designed by a creator to be used for a specific purpose. But somewhere down the line, people start to use that product. Somewhere it gets manipulated and used for different purposes other than it was intended. And when it does, it causes fallout and pain. And here's what I want you to see today. You were designed for a specific purpose. In your body, your mind, your soul, they function at their best when we, do, when we live our lives the way we were designed. So when God made you, he made you and his main purpose for you is to worship. The Bible tells us that through him, all things were created by him 
and for him. Our number one purpose was for God's glory that we were created. That means above his desire for you to experience pleasure is his desire for you to worship him. Above his plan for you to reproduce and multiply was his plan for you to worship him. I would believe this, above his desire for you to make disciples is his desire for you to worship him. God, the creator, the designer, he made you and he placed at the center, the core of your soul, the longing to give praise and adoration to him. But he also gave us something else. He gave us something called free will. You see, we get to choose who or what we will worship. And just like we can choose to use any product in the way that we want, but if we use it outside of the way that it was designed, it can cause pain. So we can choose to use that desire to worship any way we want. And we can worship whomever or whatever we want. But when we choose to worship those things above the one true God, I believe we produce behaviors and attitudes that damage our relationship with him. And can I tell you what has me concerned right now? I am concerned that we have lost the habit of worshiping God in our lives. You know, over the past year, the normal rhythms of worshiping God have been disrupted, changed, or even forgotten in our lives. You know, the pandemic, it's relieved some of the business of our lives, and some of that is good, but I also believe it's caused a big disruption in our spiritual lives. Now, I know many people say, hey, Kurt, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And you're right. You do not have to go to be a church to be a Christian. Going to church does not equal spiritual health. But the amount of time you spend worshiping and the authenticity of your worship is an indicator of your spiritual health. Say it this way, church attendance does not equal health, but worship is spiritual health. So when we are regularly giving God that praise, the honor that he deserves, when we're spiritually healthy, because we have a proper perspective of who God is, then then we're healthy. Proverbs 9, 10 says it this way. It says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In other words, when we clearly see the bigness and the awe of God, we realize that we are not him. We realize that he's wiser than our wisdom. He's more powerful than our power. And we believe and we notice that he is more worthy than we were ever worthy of. The focus of our lives is not ourselves, our comfort, our social status, our pleasures, our successes, our strengths, our possessions, the focus of our life is him because he is the author, the designer. He has a plan for you. He wants to use you in the kingdom. But if we don't have a healthy perspective of him on the throne, well then we have a problem because we place other things ahead of him. As we worship God, okay, as Steve Carter talked about last week, we produce something. When God is on the throne of our life, Steve Carter said, we produce the fruits of the Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. However, when we replace him on the throne, we begin to worship 
something else. We no longer produce the fruits of the Spirit, but we do produce things in our lives. Guys, friends, it is easy to replace worshiping God with lowercase g gods in our lives. Let me illustrate it. For some of you, some of you are leaders. You're leaders at your work, you're leaders in your family, you're leaders in the community. And when we are spiritually healthy, when God is on the throne, okay, when God is on the throne, we are spiritually healthy. That leadership is not what's worship, but that leadership is used by God for influence and kingdom impact. But when we remove God off the throne and we put that leadership on the throne, that leadership then begins to, something like something we worship, it turns to we worship power. And instead of producing the fruits of the spirits, we produce abuse and injustice. I've been watching what it means to be a leader in our culture. And I believe it's been distorted and it looks a lot more like power than influence right now. Doesn't look like a lot of us as leaders have a proper perspective of who God is and why he wants to use us as a leader to influence others. Let me give you another example. For some of us, we're financially wealthy. We're well off. And when God is at a proper perspective on the throne, that money, oh, when we recognize it's his and it's used, again, for kingdom impact, it's used with generosity. But when we take God off the throne, we put money on the throne, what we produce is greed and discomfort. Or maybe, maybe you're worshiping possessions and in your life, and because of that, you're seeing an extreme amount of selfishness or materialism. Or maybe, maybe you put a God up there that's a person, somebody else, and you're producing hurt in relationships or division. Maybe you're compromising in ways that you never thought you would. Maybe you're not just compromising in that relationship, but maybe you're actually breaking relationships with those you love the most in order to pursue that person that you're worshiping. Friends, we were designed for worship. But when we worship little G gods, our fruit is selfishness, hate, injustice, greed, and division. Did anyone else see that on display during the pandemic? I know I did. But not just in others. I saw it in myself. Because there's a time where I take God off the throne and I begin to worship other things in my life. So what I want to do today, I just want to take a few minutes to dive into where we worship, why we worship, and how we worship. Because I'm going to be up front. The next step coming out of this message for all of us is we're going to actually have a moment where we're going to worship because he deserves it. And we're going to put him back on the proper place on the throne because he designed us, he created us for that moment to worship him. So if you wanna take notes, you can open the Northview app and you can go to the notes section. If you're online, you can actually just click the notes tab. Or if you have a Bible with you and you just wanna take notes in your Bible, would you open to 2 Kings chapter five? Because that's where we're gonna start. And as you're flipping there, as you're flipping to 2 Kings chapter five, I'll give you a little context here because this story that we're gonna read took place 3,000 years ago, okay? A long time ago. But, but I believe the attitude and understanding of God is being 
repeated in many ways in our culture today. So let's look at 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1. It says this, Now Naaman was the commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man and in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Okay, so we're going to stop right there. So first of all, the Bible introduces us to a guy named Naaman. He's one of the top commanders of the army of Aram. Not only that, is he really important? He has a problem. His problem is he has leprosy, okay? It's an incurable skin disease. Now, Aram is located in what is now modern-day Syria. And we read about Aram a lot in the Bible, okay? The people of Aram, they were called the Aramaeans, okay? So if you read about the Israelites and the Aramaeans, they often had battles. So either whether they were fighting or not, it could be said that the Israelites and the Aramaeans are enemies, all right? We also need to know this. The way that the ancient people believed and understood God is really important. So the nations of those days, they believed that God had a limit. He had a region or an area or a nation that he was able to and had authority to reign over it. So each nation would worship and honor different gods. And those gods, they had names. And as Pastor Steve always talks about, when we see names in the Bible, we need to pay attention because names matter. Names give identity. So we have to understand what is the name, what is the identity of those gods. So in Aram, there was a god named Ramon. Now Ramon, that name means god of war and god of storm. So the commander of the army of Aram worships a god the God of war, Ramon. Okay, let's read on. Verse two. Now bands of ra raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. Remember, they were enemies. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, in Israel, he would cure him of his leprosy. Okay, Move on. Remember, I said that gods were regionalized, but that's not the same for Israel. If you know the story of the Bible, the story of God, God, he calls Israel his chosen nation, but he chose to use Israel to reveal himself not just to Israel, but to the whole world because he's the God of the whole world. So if we go back to Exodus chapter three, if you have your Bible, you can go there. There we're gonna find a man named Moses. Now Moses, he encounters God. So if you, if you don't remember this story, let me refresh your memory. If you haven't heard it, that's okay. Moses was an Israelite. However, he was actually raised by Egyptians. He was raised by Pharaoh's daughter. She drew him up out of the water and raised him. Now the Israelites, though, were slaves. They were slaves in Egypt. And one day, Moses sees an Egyptian abusing a slave and he steps in and he actually kills the Egyptian. And because of that, he flees for his life. He leaves Egypt and he's out in the wilderness for 40 years. And while he's out there, he gets married. Good for him. Found a lady, you know. 
a wilderness lady, but she was a looker. And so, so finds a lady, and his father-in-law, Jethro, puts him in charge of tending the flock. So one day he's out tending the flock in the middle of the wilderness, and he comes across this bush that's burning, but it doesn't burn up. So he goes over to it, and the bush begins speaking to him. And it's God in the bush calling him. Now, this bush actually says, God says to him, hey, Moses, I am going to use you. You are going to go back to Egypt. You're going to get my chosen people, the Israelites, and you're going to free them from slavery. And Moses is afraid. He doesn't know if the Israelites will believe him. He doesn't know how to describe this God to the Israelites when he goes back. So he asks the bush, he asked God a question. Here's the question. What's your name? Seems like an interesting thing to ask in this moment where you're having this incredible encounter with God, when you like are overwhelmed by his presence, when you're like talking to God, but he says, no, I have the boldness. I need to ask you, what's your name? So let's look at that in Exodus chapter three. Now Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? He said to Moses, I am who I am. That's his name. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So Moses goes to God and he says, what's your name? What do you control? Are you the God of the storm? Are you the God of war? Are you the God of fertility? Are you the God of land or sea? What do you control? Because I need to know. Because I'm going to go back and I'm going to try and get this nation to follow me out of slavery in the most dangerous moment of their life. And I need to be able to tell them that the God who sent me is actually capable of helping them. So what's your name? And God's response is, I am who I am, which seems bizarre at first, but do you realize what he's saying? He's saying this, I am not described by one ability or region. I don't control only one aspect of this world. I am God. I'm the one true God. I'm the God, not only just the one true God, I'm the creator of all this, but I'm not just the creator, I'm in control. I'm not just in control, I'm the sustainer. I'm the alpha, I'm the omega, I'm the beginning, I'm the end. I'm the God, there are no other gods before me, so don't put me in a box, don't define me by a name, don't limit me to a region, and don't tell me what I can't do. I simply am God. So we go back to our story. The God of Aram can't heal Naaman. Of course he can't. He's just the God of war. But in Israel, there's one who can heal. Of course he can. He's the one true God. So we go back to our story. Naaman actually travels to Israel. He ends up finding the prophet Elisha. And Elisha says to him, here's what you need to do. You need to go dunk yourself in the Jordan River seven times. And on the seventh time you come up, you will be healed. And at first, Naaman's like, an Israel river? I'm, I'm from Aram. This, your rivers are terrible. I could just go back there and do it in one of my rivers. He's too proud. Why? Because it's his enemy. But then, eventually he's convinced, and he goes and he dunks himself seven times. On the seventh time, seventh time he was healed. So let's read 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 15. 
So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all of his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before him and he said, realization, now I know there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, as surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, then please let your servant be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make a burnt offering or sacrifice to any other God but the Lord. I want you to see what happened here. He had a life change moment. He recognized that there was only one God and a God in Israel, but at the same time, he put God right back into a box. Remember, he believed that God only reached a certain region or area. So you know what his solution was? His solution, well, if you won't accept a gift from me to praise this God, let me dig up as much dirt here in Israel as my mules can carry. And then I'll take it with me. And I'm going to go back over here to where I'm from. And I'm going to pour it on the ground because then I can create an altar to God. And he'll go with me because he lives in this one region. But I can bring him to my region and I can pour him on the ground. And so then when I want to, I can worship God here because I can't come all the way back to here to worship him. And I just want to be able to take God with me wherever I go, but he's stuck. He's only in one place. And that kind of seems like a weird thing to do, but I got a question for you. Do we limit God's reach in our life? I know many of you have had holy experiences with God here at Northview Church or another church. And then we leave, and it's like he didn't go with us. But if we could just, oh, if we could just pick up our chair, the one that we sit in when we're in that auditorium, and we could take it with us wherever we go and take it with us to work and put it down over here, and we could sit in it, and we can worship God when we're at work. And if we could just take it here and put it in our car, take it here when we go to home, because then we could take God with us to worship. We limit God oftentimes to the one hour that we spend on a weekend worshiping him. Do you do that? Because at times, I do. You know, I heard so many people say, man, we love, we love that we can attend church online. But when the worship happens, it's just not the same. It's when I go get my coffee. It's when I get my kids kind of occupied so that I can pay attention to the message. And I want you to know something. I am concerned that some haven't been back to church since the start of the pandemic. Because I think there's tremendous value in the people gathering together for worship, for teaching, for encouragement, but probably most importantly, because God has put gifts and talents inside each one of us that we need to be using to serve the kingdom. And I believe with my whole heart 
that the vehicle that God has set up for us to make the greatest impact for the kingdom of heaven here on earth is through the church, and the church needs you using those gifts and talents, joining together with the body on movement for that. But I also know this. Some of you, you can't be here in person. You have physical limitations. Maybe geographical limitations. We have people that join us online from all over the world, and we're so glad you're here. Others of you, you know, you just can't physically get here yet because of the virus and, and some of the concerns that you have, and I need you to hear this. I am not concerned about your attendance record, but I am concerned about your worship. And I'm not just talking to the online crowd, I'm talking to all of us. Because we have to carry our worship with us and not just leave it on a weekend, on a Sunday morning. We have to carry it wherever we go. And I wanna highlight just one more verse if I can. It's the next verse of this passage. It says, uh, um, Naaman says, but may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down and he's leaning on my arm and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. See, Naaman knows he lives in a culture where he's going to be put into situations that he has to bow to another God other than the one true God. So he says, forgive me in advance because I know culturally I'm going to give in. And as I read that, it hit me. Maybe it's hitting you. I know in my heart of hearts what God has done for me. I have personal evidence of his goodness, but in my moments of clarity, I want to worship him and worship him only. But when I go about my life in the culture and I see the world around me, I find myself bowing to other gods, taking my attention from him. I don't know what it might be for you, but it could be money, power, possessions, success, pleasure. I'm wondering if you were honest in this moment, would you say you've been bowing and worshiping other gods more than you've been worshiping the one true God? Because you were designed to worship, but we have free will to choose who or what we will worship. So the first question I said we were gonna answer is where? Where do we worship? And the answer to that one is everywhere, right? Because God is not just localized to one place only to be praised on Sunday. He's to be praised here, he's to be praised online, he's to be praised in our car, he's to be praised at home, at work, in the middle of the grocery store. You know, here's what it makes me think of, and maybe because I have a two-year-old at home and I read two-year-old books every single night before bed, but it makes me think of Dr. Seuss, and if I could take the great Dr. Seuss out of context and change the words and make it more Christian, it would be something like this. And I will praise you the great I am and I'll praise you on a boat and I'll praise you with a goat and the, praise you in the rain and in the dark and on a train and in a car and in a tree. You are so good, so good, you see. So I'll praise you in a box and I'll praise you with a fox and I'll praise you in a house and I'll praise you with a mouse and I'll praise you here or there. Say, I will praise you everywhere. I will so praise the great I am. I do so love him, Sam I am. That's what I see that we need to be doing. Yep, completely stolen from Dr. Seuss. Not worth clapping for. Okay, but God designed us to worship him, and when we use that against the way that he caused us to worship, we worship other things that cause us fallout and pain. So we should worship him everywhere. But the second question is, why do we worship then? 
This could be a whole sermon in itself, maybe a whole sermon series in itself, so I won't dive into that, but I'm gonna give you five really rapid-fire reasons that God deserves our worship. Here we go, number one, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We worship him because he's the creator. Perfect. He's God, we're not, period. There is He's the God, we're not him, and because God put life in my lungs, in your lungs, then we're gonna give him praise. If God made me to worship him, and all creative beings are designed to give him praise, well then so will I. Number two, Psalms 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. We worship him because creation declares his glory. We can see God's glory on display through something called general revelation. That just means by looking at what he made, we can see the greatness of God. A few weeks ago, I got to go on a ski trip out in Colorado. And when I saw the mountains and the snow and the tree, it was like every lift ride. The greatness of God was proclaiming to me. And it put me into perspective and I felt so small. And God got my praise and he got my glory just by looking at what he had made. We can see the beauty of God's created from the mountains to the flowers to the grass to the sky to the stars. They all declare God's greatness. So why? Number three. Job 12 says it this way, but ask the animals and they will teach you or the birds of the sky and they will tell you or speak to the earth and it will teach you or let the fish of the sea inform you which of these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. In his hand is the life of every creature in the breath of all mankind. Number three, we worship because he because every animal worships him. Sorry, because every animal worships him. We worship because you can see God's glory by looking at the uniqueness of every living animal. You can see his creativity by looking at the detail of the fish and the birds and the animals. You can just see his humor by looking at some people, right? <laughs> you can see God's greatness. And if all the animals of the world were designed to show off the glory of God, then so will I. Number four, John 3, 16 and 17 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God, he did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Friends, we worship because he took the punishment we deserve. We worship because God loves his prized creation so much that although we didn't deserve it, he sent his one and only son to die the death that we deserved. We worship because he gives us grace that we never deserved. First John 4.19 says it this way. We love because he first loved us. So if God, if he shows me love I don't deserve, then I need to choose and love him back. And finally, number five. First Corinthians 2 says it this way. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. We worship because he offers us eternal life. We worship because not only did he die in our place, he overcame the power of death in the grave. 
He ascended into heaven, and because of that, we who ask forgiveness of our sins and accept Jesus Christ into our lives as our Lord and Savior will also be raised with him into eternal life. And if Jesus was able to leave the grave behind him, so we also need to leave the grave behind us. The old life of worshiping power, possessions, and pleasures need to be left behind us, and we need to worship the God that freed us from our selfishness and allows us to experience his goodness. So that's why we worship, and I could go on, but I wanna get to that final question because that's gonna be fun. It's how do we worship? Certainly, worship can be done through singing. Each week, we use songs to help us find the words and the emotion to give God the praise he deserves, but worship is not just singing. Worship is defined as to bow down to or give reverence to. 